biblical anthropology, a biblical view of man. Theology questions 9 and 10. Question 9, explain using biblical categories your understanding of the image of God in man. Again, the ACBC Standards of Doctrine on Anthropology says God created man out of the dust and breathed life into him so that he became a living person. Human beings are made in the image of God and were created by him to be the pinnacle of creation. Man is by design a dependent creature standing in need of divine counsel to serve God and be conformed into the image of Christ. So as an introduction uh, to this question of who God made man to be, um, I like to put it in context of a broader view of a biblical anthropology. And I think from Genesis 1, 2, and 3, if, if we catch these three categories, we have a comprehensive and balanced view of how we should think about mankind. First, we see the dignity of man. Genesis 1, God made man in his image. So man is a creature of incomparable glory among all other things on earth. The dignity of human beings is unsurpassed and unparalleled on earth because he bears the image of God. But the Bible helps us not to go overboard on the value and dignity that we ascribe to man. Because while man is made in the image of God, he is also made out of dirt. Man is dust. Genesis 2. Remembering that man was made from dirt reminds us that man is a creature who is frail, fragile, feeble, and fleeting. He is a thing of dust. So while man is a creature of incomparable glory on the earth, he is still a creature. And his dignity as the image of God is above all other created things on earth. But his dignity as a creature made of dust is far below, infinitely below, the dignity of creator God. Genesis 3, we see not only is man a creature of dignity and dust, but also depraved. He's corrupted by sin through and through. Uh, man is insidiously evil and thoroughly so. There is no part of man that is uncorrupted by sin. And nothing that he does is perfectly unstained by evil. And the Puritan Richard Baxter even said that even our tears of repentance need to be washed by the blood of the lamb. And so when we put these things together, the Bible teaches us to understand man as just an exceedingly glorious lump of dirt who is thoroughly corrupted by sin. And only this biblical explanation of what a man is can make sense of mankind. How can a creature be so wonderful and so terrible and so here today and gone tomorrow all at the same time? So capable of doing genuinely good things, not perfectly good, but genuinely good and so capable of doing evil, so powerful and capable of influencing others in the world around him and at the same time, so weak and susceptible to being influenced and overcome by others in the world around him. Uh, he's able to manipulate and control so much and from another angle is able to control so little, virtually nothing, in fact. 
So the Bible alone gives us this comprehensive, balanced view of humanity. Uh, Only God could explain the glory and the horror and the smallness of humanity. Today, our focus, first of all, will be on what does it mean that man is in the image of God? That helps us understand what a man is. It also helps us to understand why a man is. The image of God in man explains not just uh, what he is, but also the purpose for which he's been made. So simply put, we could just say that God made man to show what he is like. That's what it means that man is made in his image. And specifically, man resembles God and represents God in the world. Or we could say man reflects and rules for and under God. So those are helpful two categories, resemblance and representation, or reflection and rule. We can also think of the image of God in man, and these are your three main headings, by three different aspects. And and basically they are uh, the two categories here, resemblance and representation, and then a third category, which is just what a man is that enables him to do that. to to resemble and represent God, to reflect and rule for God. So God intends to display his glory in what a man is, his capacities, how a man lives, his character, and what a man does, his calling or office. And theologically, these are frequently discussed under the headings of the structural aspect, the ethical aspect, and the functional aspect. Uh, So the first one, uh, the first aspect of the image of God in man What a man is, his capacities, the structural aspect. Some uh, theology books will call it the ontological aspect, uh, his his being. What is his his structure? What is his ontology? And this structural aspect of the image of God has been the most prominent understanding through church history. Uh, But it's perhaps, of the three aspects I've listed, the, the one that's the least explicitly tied to the image of God in the Bible itself. It is, I would argue, a a proper theological inference drawn from the functional and ethical aspects of the image of God, which are which are more explicitly um, explained in Scripture. So what do we mean uh, by this aspect of the image of God in man? Well, God gave man certain capacities that enable man to express God's character and God's rule in the world. John Frame says the image of God consists of those qualities that equip man to be, lowercase l, Lord of the world, under God. Okay, if you think about this. If there would be a creature who was actually capable of being a reflection of God's character in some really profound ways um, by how he lived... If there would be a creature that was actually capable of representing God's rule over the world, what kind of creature would he need to be? He would need to have certain capacities um, and and, um, potential and abilities. And examples of some of these capacities God gave man that are sometimes identified as contributing to man as the image of God include man's rationality, his cognition, his creativity, his linguistic ability, his relation, relational capacities, his spirituality, so he's able to know and love and commune with God, his moral capabilities, 
etc. On a related note, while we think about man's capacities or composition or structure as part of the image of God, we can point out that God made human nature suitable for the incarnation of his son, which, which is a beautiful and wild thing to think about. When God created the world, he did so for the ultimate purpose of displaying his glory and that for his own good pleasure. And he planned from the very beginning, from before the foundation of the world, that the ultimate display of his glory in creation would be when he sent his son to appear visibly and personally in creation. So all of creation displays God's glory, but the greatest display of his glory was the appearing of his son. So how would God the son appear in creation in a way that would most fully display the glory of God? Well, by taking to his person a human nature. Okay. God made mankind in his image with the incarnation of his son in mind. God made human nature in such a way that it was capable of expressing the glory of God. God gave mankind certain capacities and properties and potencies that it would be suitable for beholding the glory of God in the incarnation. All right, here's one application of this aspect of the image of God in man. This is how we treat people has a special bearing on our relationship to God. So um, if someone wants to be uh, kind of a jerk and provocative to Muslims in the Middle East, they take an image of the prophet Muhammad, a picture or drawing, and then they dishonor it or, or deface the image in some way. So they dishonor the prophet, uh, the false prophet, by dishonoring his image. Okay, So think about that illustration and how we should view dishonoring of any and every person on the globe. Because all people are God's image in the world. If you want to dishonor the God of the universe, whom you can't see, well, you find his image in the world and dishonor that. And conversely, if you want to honor the unseen God who made the world, find his image in the world and honor that. First John teaches us the way that we um, treat our, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ, who especially bear the image of God in the world, is a reflection of um, our love for or disdain for God himself. First John 4.20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. James 3, likewise says, don't go around blessing God with you. This is my paraphrase. Don't go around blessing God with your words while you also speak harshly and with malicious intent about his image in the world. James 3, 9 says, with our mouths we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Genesis 9, whoever sheds the blood of man, um, by, by man shall his blood be shed. Okay? Uh, because there is something inherent about who God made man to be as his image that is especially gives him mankind a special dignity and honor. And unlike killing an animal, to kill a man uh, is is worthy of um, capital punishment. 
All right. Next aspect of the image of God in man is man's character, how a man lives, the ethical aspect. Man images God by imitating God, reflecting God's character in the way he lives. So God intends for man to use his godlike capacities in ways that are like God. Ephesians 4.24 Put on the new self created after the likeness of God. And Genesis 1 says man was created uh, in the image of God after the, after the image and likeness of God. So put on the new self, Ephesians 4 says, created after the likeness of God. In true righteousness and holiness. So when we live in ways that are righteous and holy, we are living up to the likeness of God, according to God's intention. Yes? Anything you say, Keith, about distinguishing those two words? Why does Genesis use likeness, image, and likeness? Yeah, uh, some some people draw... Um, I mean, there, an Old Testament scholar who is a professor of mine... I remember drew some distinction between those two, but I don't remember what it was, and I wouldn't place that great of emphasis on it. It's like um, uh, that's poetry, that part of Genesis 1. It's, it should be set off kind of poetically in the format of your Bible. It probably is. And frequently in Hebrew poetry, it, it uses what's parallelism. It says something, and it says the same thing, basically idea. Maybe it develops the idea a little further but just uses the same concept in different words. So I think they're basically synonymous. Yeah, that's a great question, though. Um, you can, whoever wrote this Hebrew word up here, you can ask them if you, if you see them again. <clears throat> Keith Palmer? Yeah, yeah, okay. Ask him. Um, but if he disagrees with me, he's wrong. No, I'm just kidding. All right, likewise, Colossians 3.9 says, Do not lie to one another. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So, again, when we tell the truth to other people, okay, uh, that is part of the renewal of the image of God in man. When we live holy, righteous lives, our character is part of what the image of God in man is, is supposed to be. John Frame says, imitation of God is the fundamental principle of Christian ethics. First Peter 1, be holy as I am holy, says the Lord. Matthew 5, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Matthew 5 again, love your enemies as God loves his. Ephesians 4, forgive one another as God has forgiven you in Christ. Ephesians 5, 1, that's a good one to write down. Ephesians 5, 1, be imitators of God. And then Ephesians 5, 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. So the concept image of God is actually all over the Bible in, in more places than just the phrase image of God is found. The phrase image of God is not found that many times in the Bible. I just read two from the New Testament where either image of God or likeness of God is used. Uh, Ephesians 4.24, Colossians 3.10, James 3.9, I quoted earlier, is one of them. But, but there aren't that many. The concept, though, is all over the Bible. Whenever you understand it and you see something like, be holy as I am holy, you should think, oh, yeah, like, like be the image of God, like man created, like God created man to be. Be imitators of God. 
That command could just be, be the image of God, okay? So you need to have um, your eyes open to what this means beyond just where you see the phrase used in the Bible. Be like God. Live in ways that reflect God. And we please God when we reflect him, when we live ways that are um, in imitation of him. When God looks at us and he sees a reflection of himself, God is pleased. God is pleased by the display of his own glory. So when we reflect his glory, God is pleased. Okay? Just like God has been pleased within himself for all of eternity, beholding his own glory in the shining face of his only begotten son. And on that note, we are never more like God than when we are living to glorify, love, and delight in God. When we are chiefly motivated by God's glory, we are living like God because that is God's great purpose in the world. Okay, when we find our highest delight in knowing and communing with God, we are living like God. That's God's great joy from all eternity. Okay? Uh, the unsurpassed, supremely satisfying joy of loving communion with God, which God himself has experienced within himself for all of eternity as Father, Son, and Spirit. When we love the Son by the Spirit, we are living like God. When we love the Father in the Son by the Spirit, we are living like God. Okay? What, what we're saying here is, that if you live a righteous life, that you are fulfilling your purpose as the image of God. What's, what's principle number one of a righteous life? Love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So this ethical aspect of what it means to image God uh, is never truer of us than when we are living to glorify love and delight in God himself. This next point is pretty neat. Uh, I'm going to skip it for the sake of time because you don't necessarily need to know it for um, answering this question and understanding what the concept image of God is. But look up those verses. Consider that statement. Uh, I'll, like Paul says to Timothy, think about these things. The Lord will give you understanding. <clears throat> All right. One application or implication for this aspect of the image of God in man is that living godly lives fulfills in part the purpose for which man was made. Okay? Pursue godliness. Godliness, godlikeness. Pursue imaging God. It's always an appropriate question to ask yourself or others in what ways should you be an imitator of God in this or that situation. And so we see the image of God in man is not only a fact about us, the structural aspect, it is also a goal we pursue, the ethical aspect. How do we live, think, speak, act, and even desire in ways that imitate God in some way? Um, in our culture, it's kind of the air we breathe is, is self-expression, self-identity. What image do I want to project? Okay. And the question usually is, what image do I want to project about myself? And a real turn... Uh, will happen in someone's life when they learn to reframe that life-orienting question is, what image do I want to project about God? That is the reason that we were made. To glorify God, what is the, the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. 
Okay, well, if you understand the concept of what it means that man was created in his image, that phrase, to glorify God and enjoy him forever, fits really nicely up under um, man created as the image of God. One unbiblical counsel, one example of unbiblical counsel coming from an unbiblical conception of the image of God, and I put this in not just for the sake of, you know, dogging people who are wrong, but to show you that, that uh, theology has consequences, and um, theology has consequences for the counsel you're going to give to people. So there's um, one kind of famous integrationist teacher, although he wouldn't necessarily have to be integrationist to have a wrong view of uh, the image of God. He just happens to be. Uh, says that what does it mean that man is creating the image of God? Well, it basically means that man has relational needs and longings to be loved because God is a trinity. So God experiences loving communion within himself for all of eternity and man is creating his image. Okay, well, therefore, man has a need for relationship and love. And so therefore, if, you know, a wife is not being loved well by her husband, then she... I don't know, part of her operating system deactivates, so she's not able to function in ways that she needs to or something like that. <laughs> anyway, uh, in that view of the image of God in man, we become basically like a cup of needs uh, that needs to be filled up by love and relationship with other people. Okay? Whereas, really, uh, a true conception of the image of God in man would turn that on the head. We were created in God's image, and God is one who is gives himself in self-giving love. So the image of God in us means we are called to give ourselves in love to others, not that we are an empty cup who need to be loved by other people. Anyway, just one example. Your understanding of the image of God matters. Next aspect of the image of God in man, calling, what a man does, the functional aspect. So this functional understanding of the image of God is perhaps the most prominent in the biblical text. Well, at least in the Old Testament, which is obviously the uh, seedbed of this concept that man is created in God's image. The image of God in man refers not only to man's capacities and character, but also refers to the office man holds, the task he's given to perform or the job he's given to do, his function. Man's role on the earth as Lord resembles God's role as the Lord over all things. Man's rule over the earth also represents God's rule over all things. So this aspect of the image of God is comparable with the notions of the same concept held by other ancient Near Eastern peoples around Israel. So um, a few decades ago, a well-known great old testament scholar thought you know for man for god to create man in his image seems like a very important uh, concept it's something that must be very pregnant with meaning and yet it's not explained at all really it's, it's just put out there and then the text moves on how are we supposed to understand what that mean what this means and he said well let's look at was there a conception of man as the image of God or man as the image of a God in the surrounding cultures around Israel so that if, if um, Israel read that, 
in the biblical witness, they would understand, oh, yeah, we know we know what it means for someone to be the image of God or created in the image of God. And what they found is actually in other cultures around them, there were people who were called the image of God. Uh, but that referred to not everyone, but just the king or the pharaoh, uh, the Egyptian king, for example, um, uh, back back before the time of the Exodus was described as a living statue of, of such and such a God. So the one who ruled over a region or a people was thought to be the image of God, that whatever God was imagined to be sovereign over that region or people. But in the Bible, it's not just uh, human kings that are the image of God, but all people are created in the image of God. And in fact, we find in Genesis 1, after God creates man in his image, he tells them, rule over things, rule over the earth, subdue the earth, have dominion. Okay, so everyone is God's image. And part of what that means is they are called to rule over God's world on God's behalf. Likewise, wherever a God was imagined to rule uh, in, in you know, these ancient cultures, images of that God were erected or statues set up in these places to represent the rule of that God over that place. Like, hey, here in this in this little ancient Canaanite place, this God is king. This is, uh, you know, the God of this territory. And see, here's his image. Here's his statue all over the place. Um, you think about this in the story of um, Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel, you know, built a big statue of himself, a big image of himself to represent. OK, he was the one that was the ultimate ruler over this place. Likewise. So God, God's intention is to fill the earth with images of himself, us, to, to represent that God is the one who is ruling over all of the earth. God establishes images of himself all over the world to resemble and represent his rule over all the earth. Okay, who is king of this place? Well, God rules here. How do we know? Because we see his image all over the face of the earth. Okay. A little ancient Near Eastern history. If you didn't follow that part, that's okay. Because it's right in the biblical text. God said, Genesis 1, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. And over the birds of the heavens. And over the livestock. And over all the earth. And over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And here's that poetry. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves over the earth. Psalm 8, which I read to open this session before I prayed, celebrates this same aspect. That what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Let, and yet you have uh, crowned him with glory and honor and, and made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. And you have given him dominion over, you know, the beasts and whatever passes along the seas, etc. So man is to rule over God's world by God's choice on God's behalf, under God's rule, for God's glory, representing God's rule. Uh, man is is the vice regent or the viceroy of the true king over all 
the earth. Another way to look at this is be fruitful and multiply and fill those commands is a commission that man shares with other living creatures that God made in Genesis 1. But what is distinct to man is this command, subdue and have dominion over every living thing. Likewise, we can see this in uh, kind of the structure of the Genesis 1 account. Psalm 8, we talked about, celebrates this aspect of man as image of God. Man is commissioned to form and fill the earth after and like God. So just really quickly, if you see uh, the structure of um, Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. And then, broadly speaking, days 1 through 3, God forms what was without form. And then days 4 through 6, God fills what was void and empty And then God commissions man to follow the pattern of his work in creation, form, subdue the earth, and fill. Fill the earth themselves and then exercise dominion over every other living thing that God said to be fruitful and multiply. Uh, And then here's some other scriptures where where it's explicit that God tells man, hey, I worked in creation and now you work after me. Man is called to image God in his office as lords, lowercase l, on the earth under God. Pretty neat. Okay, so one application of this, which I don't have on this PowerPoint, but hopefully in your notes, one application of this is the glory of God displayed in our work. Each man and woman is to work like God did in creation, to play a part in producing things or providing services that help people. Okay, each is to work in ways that make the world a more productive, fruitful, hospitable, or just enjoyable place for people to live. And so when you mow the lawn or make a meal or parent or go to work, as long as your work contributes to the good of others in some way, which it always does unless your work is inherently immoral, then all of these things are an expression of God's rule and God's loving care over the earth, even an extension of God's care for the things he has made. So when we work and create and produce and parent, and and some of you as you govern and rule over others, these roles resemble in some small way God's role as the caring Lord of all creation. And of course, as God's image, we are, trying, we are to try and fill these roles to exercise dominion over creation in ways that are like God. Okay, uh, just real briefly, I said before, I didn't use this phrase, but I said before that the concept of the image of God is, is stretchy. It's not limited to where we find that phrase. Um, Here's some examples of that. There's much overlap between the concept of image and glory. Okay. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11:7, man is the image and glory of God. Or consider this juxtaposition in 2 Corinthians 3:18, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Okay? Again, the Westminster shorter Um, What's the chief end of man? Uh, Well, God created man to uh, glorify God and enjoy him forever. 
Okay, well, where's that in Genesis 1? God created man for his glory. Uh, that, you know, that sounds good, but I don't see that in the account of where God uh, created man. Okay, well, if you understand what it means that God created man in his image, those two concepts absolutely uh, cohere in Westminster Shorter Catechism and the larger catechism are correct in offering that answer. First uh, Corinthians fifteen forty likewise shows the overlap of these categories. Romans eight, Romans one. Did I give you these scriptures? I did, so you can enjoy these on your own time. Um, man is called to fill the earth with the image of God. Man is called to fill the earth with the glory of God. Um, both the creation mandate and the Great Commission, that's, that's the ultimate purpose of it. I wish I had time to develop that, but um, we're going to keep going. Okay. This is how... Um, what am I saying here? Oh, okay. How does the concept of glory overlap with the concept of man of the image of God with respect to those three aspects, capacities, character, and calling? Well, man displays God's glory by being like him in some ways, by living like him in some ways, and by acting as rulers on the earth who form and fill it, who create and sustain on it in those ways, revealing God's glory as the image. Okay, another, there's also a close connection between the idea of image and sonship in the Bible. Genesis 5.1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made them in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man, and they were created. Here, That was step one in a genealogy. Here's step two. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image, whose name was Seth. Okay, if Seth is in the, create, made in the image and likeness of Adam, Adam was made in the image of likeness of God. Seth is the son of Adam, so there's a sense that Adam is the son of God. And in fact, Luke 3.13, in a genealogy that goes backwards, calls Adam the son of God. So uh, wherever you see sonship language, people as the son of God or Jesus as the son of God, there's a great overlap with the concept of man as the image of God as well. Okay, you, I could have another slide that talks about image and name. Okay. So, so the concept, image of God, is, is all over the place. If you understand the concept and aren't just looking for the phrase. And that, come, that can come up in your counseling ministries in a gajillion different ways. Okay, the story of salvation, from one understanding, can be seen as just the restoration of the image of God. You can read the whole story of the Bible as the installation of the image of God, the ruin of the image of God, and the restoration of the image of God, or, or uh, the perversion of the image of God in the fall, and the perfection of the image of God through the work of Christ. And I'll go through this just quickly. In creation, we've talked about this. The image of God is installed in man. In the fall, the image of God is marred, though not lost completely. Genesis 9 this is after the fall, James 3, talking not necessarily about believers, um, still speaks of man as, as being the image of God, but it's marred, it's, it's perverted. This beautiful picture of the glory of God has oil and grease and stuff thrown over it. 
but Jesus came, who himself is the perfect image of God. And he came in the likeness of sinful flesh, but was without sin, and so perfectly imaged God as a man, and therefore became everything that God created man to be, and more. So Jesus came as the perfect image of God, resembling and representing the Father perfectly as God the Son incarnate. List these scriptures. And then God's purpose in salvation is to conform us to the image. Uh, there's that buzzword again. To conform us to the image of Christ. That's the restoration of the image of God in us. Christ's work and our union with him through faith secures this for us. As we are transformed into the image of Christ, as we become more and more like Christ through salvation in Christ by the Spirit, then God's purposes for humanity as his image are being realized. We are commanded to cooperate in this image restoring work, these scriptures I've given you. And then in the end, when Christ returns, the image of God will be perfected in us. First Corinthians fifteen forty nine. Just as we have borne the image of man, the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Isn't that beautiful? First John three two. When we see him, we shall be like him. And then Revelation five ten twenty two five. We could list also Second Timothy two um, twelve. That we will reign on the earth. Not only will, will we image God perfectly in an ethical sense. But we will also fulfill our, our role as the image of God in the functional sense. In our calling. We will reign with Christ and, and rule over the heavens and the earth. In a way that, that works well and is, is beautiful. And, and is not uh, thorns coming up from the ground when we try and plant wheat or something. All right, putting it all together, man is called to glorify God by using his godlike capacities in ways that reflect his character and rule, and the gospel of Christ makes this possible. Any questions about the image of God? I have time for one. All right. <clears throat> Explain using biblical categories your understanding of... We just did that. Great. All right. Provide a biblical description of the dichotomist view of mankind and explain the counseling implications of this doctrine with regard to the inner and outer man. So two questions. Okay. ACBC standards of doctrine address uh, what they mean by that. God created the human person with a physical body and an immaterial soul, each possessing equal honor and essential to humanity. The Bible depicts the soul as that which motivates the physical body to action. These constituent aspects are separable only at death. The great hope of Christians is the restoration of body and soul in a glorified existence in the new heavens and new earth. Okay, so explain the dichotomist view of mankind. All right, is man dichotomous or trichotomous? Dichotomy, di means two, cotomy means cotomy or something. Man has two constituent aspects, his body and his soul or spirit or heart. An inner man and an outer man. A, a, a view called trichotomy, man has three constituent aspects, body, soul, and spirit. 
So these both have some kind of history, at least in recent theology. Dividing soul and spirit. Is it the case that body and soul are um, distinct aspects of man? If you say yes, you might point to these scriptures, uh, but you would do so erroneously. Uh, Dichotomy is a better position because distinct words do not necessarily have distinct reference. Okay, like we just talked about image and likeness. Perhaps there's a, a, a nuance difference between man as image of God and man as likeness of God, but it basically refers to the same reality. Likewise, soul, spirit, mind, even sometimes uh, conscience, heart. In the Bible, these all refer to the same basic reality, man's inner person, that immaterial part of him from which all moral, asp- all moral action comes, okay? That's expressed through our outer man or our body. Though those words that I said all refer to the same basic reality, can have different nuances about them and emphasize different realities about our inner person. Okay? Um, so that's just how words work, generally. Also, trichotomy has been used. Why, why do we bring this up? In part because trichotomy has been used to support various unbiblical positions. One of those relates to counseling, which is to say if people have problems with their, a trichotomist might say, if people have problems with their body, they need to go to a doctor. If they have problems in their spirit, they need to go see their pastor or, or another mature Christian. If they have problems with their soul, though, they need to go see a, a psychiatrist or something or, or a secular psychologist. Psych, uh, psych, psuche is the Greek word for uh, um, soul. And so psychologist a soulologist or something Um, but this uh to differentiate soul and spirit like that is baseless now not everyone who's a trichotomist would would you know have that counseling implication of it okay so um you know trichotomy is well within christian orthodoxy uh and and is fine as long as you don't draw unhelpful, unbiblical conclusions from them. All right. First thing to say about man is a dichotomy. You shouldn't think about this in a way that bifurcates, which means cut in half, man into separable parts. Man is a psychosomatic unity. That's a fun word. You can use at parties with friends. Psychosomatic, which means soul, body, from the Greek words for each. Unity. Okay, He's an embodied soul or even a besold body. So even better maybe to see that the terms body, soul, and spirit, heart, etc. all refer to the whole person from different perspectives. Uh, Anthony Hokema, in, in a great book on, on biblical anthropology, way, way more dense than you need for the ACBC examination, but certainly edifying to your soul and helpful, says, though the Bible does see man as a whole, It also recognizes human beings have two sides, physical and and non-physical. Man is one person who can, however, be looked at from two sides. So so I bring those things up just to emphasize uh, when we talk about man as a dichotomy, uh, man is still a unity, okay? His inner man and his outer man shouldn't be thought of as um, separable, although they are separated in the intermediate state, which we're about to talk about. But instead, both refer to uh, 
the person, the whole person. It's not like your body is not the real you. Your soul is the real you. No, no, your body is you too. The, um, the biblical worldview honors the material aspect of us as well. Okay, and yet, even though man is a unity, not a composite of parts, paradoxically, um, man is separated, his immaterial from his material aspect in between an individual's death and the resurrection that will happen. This is called the intermediate state. 2 Corinthians 5, 1. We know that if the tent that is our earthly home, that's our body, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. Not that we would, not that our spirits would be free from a body, but that we would receive a new glorified, resurrected body. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And he's given the spirit. For this very thing as a guarantee. The spirit guarantees that your body will be raised from the dead. Um, and glorified. Okay. So uh, more scriptures that, that show this paradoxical separation of man. Ecclesiastes 12.7. The dust, the body of man returns to the earth. And the spirit returns to God. Um, Hebrews 12.22.23. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, because the bodies of the righteous are still six feet under, waiting for the resurrection. Okay, I'm just going to read this. During the intermediate state, the Bible speaks paradoxically in various places of the person as simultaneously in the grave and with the Lord. Again, I emphasize this just to show the unity of man and shows that the body is not dissed in the New Testament. It seems paradoxical. This is a John Frame quote. It seems paradoxical to put it this way. But in Scripture, it is not a material part of the person that lies in the grave. Rather, it is the person. Similarly, Scripture never says the immaterial parts of us, our souls or spirits, go to heaven or hell. Rather, we go there. It is the person, not some part of the person who is in heaven or hell. And it is the person who is in the grave in the way that scripture speaks about it. In God's time, however, this paradox will be removed. When Jesus returns, there will be a physical resurrection. Hallelujah. Of both the righteous and the wicked. So God will reconstitute the original unity of the person, the unity between the person in the grave and the person who is with Christ. So there's a sense in which man is an indivisible unity, even in a way not fully comprehensible when that unity is Divided. Why do we bring up here uh, the intermediate state and this talk? Well, because death, the intermediate state, forces us to recognize that man has uh, an inner man and an outer man. It, it shows in a powerful way that man is, in fact, a dichotomy. <clears throat> okay. This paradoxical separation resolved to the resurrection. All right. The second part of this question, right, it was explain the dichotomous view of man. And then what are the implications for counseling for this dichotomous view of man? One, counseling is for ministers of the word. I said this earlier. Trichotomy has been used to argue pastors or ministers should handle spiritual problems or problems with people's 
souls should be handled by psychologists. Not so. Um, the help that people need related to the issues of life that aren't, that aren't something organic, like there's something wrong with my body, okay? If someone has cancer and they come to you, uh, you should send them to a physician, okay? But anything that has to do with just the affairs of life, how, how people are relating to God, to themselves, to the world around them, to others, that's the domain of the ministry of the word. Next, under, counselors must understand the unity of the inner and outer man, okay? The heart, one's inner man, can have a profound effect on one's body. Example, sinful thinking, this is, here we go. Sinful thinking and desiring, heart activity, can have adverse physical effects. Remember, we're a soul-body unity, okay? So there, these psalms, right? Think about these psalms where it says, Before I confessed my sin, my bones wasted away. Okay? If someone is, is a slave to anxiety, which is an inner man thing, comes from your heart, does that have physical effects? Absolutely. If someone is a slave to anger, which comes from the heart, Jesus said, does that have a physical effect? Absolutely. Okay? Sinful thinking, desiring can have adverse physical effects. Likewise, righteousness generally leads to greater bodily health than unrighteousness. Okay? I'm part of a medical sharing plan called uh, Samaritan's Ministries, and they ask me uh, every time I publish a health need uh, so that all of the group is going to send their insurance, non-insurance uh, you know, portions to me, uh, they say, okay, well, are you living, are you abstaining from uh, sexual immorality? Are you abstaining from drunkenness? Are you, why? Because generally speaking, righteous behavior, which comes from your heart, leads to greater bodily health and unrighteousness. This is intuitive and the Proverbs say this. But of course, there's not always a direct causative correspondence. It does, it is not always the case. And most of the time, it is not the case when someone is sick, it is a result of unrighteousness. But, Sometimes, right? Also, a man may be stumbling from an outer man perspective. My outer man is wasting away, but inwardly I'm being renewed day by day. So um, someone can be stumbling or, or wasting away in their outer man while be thriving immaterially in his inner man. Likewise, bodily factors can influence one's heart. Okay, physical suffering influences... Not in a determinative way, but influences the heart's deliberations and longing. Okay, when you are physically tired, who, like if, if you got less than, than four hours of sleep last night, okay? So your body feels tired, okay? Does that affect the deliberations of your heart? Does that affect, you know, uh, whether or not you would, like, be angry and kind of frustrated if I said something you didn't agree with, like, oh, what he said about 1 Corinthians 13 and... Okay? Absolutely. That affects your heart. Um, so counselors will need to work with physicians at times to address potential physical problems at times. Lambert say, who is the old president of ACBC, that he's trigger happy in sending people to the doctor to get a physical examination struggling with intense depression and there's no kind of history of those kinds of feelings and it can't be explained by some sort of present tragedy or something. He says, why don't you go to the doctor? Well, because like actually if you have cancer, 
then then biologically it, that you know provokes uh, <laughs> you're more it occasions sadness in your heart okay if there's something wrong with your thyroid it, it can cause you just to, to feel sad more often okay so bodily factors can influence one's heart but and and here is you should put like 500 stars behind these next two points we should not think of bodily influence on our inner man as irrepressible causation or just as causative such that a man is not morally culpable before God for his thoughts, desires, and actions. Physical variables may exacerbate or even occasion, not cause, occasion temptations to sin, not cause sin. But the body, and that includes the brain, never makes someone sin. Jesus said, from the heart come evil thoughts and evil actions and words. The heart is the initiator. Here's the balance you need to find. The heart is the initiator of all moral action. All moral action comes from the heart, whether immoral or moral. And that will always be represented or expressed in the body. Our, our spirit, we don't, we cannot relate to um, God or even the others in the world around us in a way that is like just involves our inner man and has nothing to do with the body. All moral action is represented or expressed in the body, and we could call the body then the mediator of moral action. And I, I got that line basically straight from a book called Ed, a book by Ed Welsh called "Blame It on the Brain," or as a question mark, "Blame It on the Brain," um, and that that. That book is basically all about dichotomy and how one's outer man, which includes their brain, their body, and and one's inner man uh, relates. So dichotomy excludes a strict naturalistic understanding of humanity. If you think of dichotomy and trichotomy on one side of it, and and again, I don't mean to bag on trichotomy because you know some some people I look up to theologically hold that view. I mean like kind of extreme. Uh, wacky trichotomy on one side and then on the other side dichotomy guards against a materialistic view of man like man only is a body there is not an immaterial part of man and if there's no immaterial part of man then all of our behavior all of our desires can be explained by some um, failing in our bodies like our brain chemistry or some failing in the world around us and society around us. So here's a here's a chart. Okay, so the inner man, our heart, our thoughts, beliefs, attitudes, desires, values, commitments, choices, um, our our cognition, affection, volition. From our heart comes all moral action that drives. Moral action is is mediated or expressed in our outer outer man, and even within our outer man, you could say our brain mediates um, the, the the deliberations and choices of our heart to our body. Our body responds with words and actions and feelings, and then what happens in our outer man affects or influences, but not in a determinative way or a causative way, the the deliberations of our heart. So that that's the biblical view of dichotomy and the biblical balance of it. Um, so I'll give you one 
illustration of this in my own counseling ministry. There's a man who says uh, he, he gets enraged in um, with his wife, and he has been diagnosed with bipolar. Like there's there's something as if uh, the suggestion is there's something biologically wrong with his brain that um, causes him to um, explode in fits of anger. Okay, what what am I doing in trying to counsel him? Well, one thing I'm not doing, I'm not trying to talk medicine with him. I'm not trying to try and convince him that there actually is nothing wrong with him biologically. I don't know that. But what I do know is that the anger he's experiencing is coming from his heart. Maybe there is something wrong with his body that is that is occasioning temptations to sin. Just like when there's something wrong with my body, like when I stay up all night, I'm more irritable. I'm more prone to explode in anger maybe. But that doesn't mean that that's the cause of my anger. That only provided an occasion or a temptation for my heart, what was already in my heart, to come out of it. Okay? So, so if someone explodes in anger, no matter what's wrong with their body, that was already in their heart and is coming from their heart. It ultimately has to do with what they're worshiping. Okay? Galatians 5, I showed him fits of anger. That's a work of the flesh. That, that, is, that is sinful. So I'm, I'm not trying to give him a biology lesson. I'm not trying to convince him that there's you know, nothing uh, that's off kilter in his body. You know, I'm trying to teach him to respond to the way that he responds to um, things that are unpleasant, whether that's how his wife is treating him or whether that's how he feels physically. The way he responds to those things is always coming from his heart. And so he's responsible and he needs to repent and believe the gospel and repent toward his wife and others. Okay. Biblical counseling. Here's another implication. Biblical counseling will always aim for the heart and not merely behavior modification or the removal of unpleasant feelings, just the feeling of negative emotions in our bodies. We always aim for the heart of man. Implications for counseling for dichotomy. I copied these. Uh, are the are the numbers actually one, two, three, four in your notes? Okay, they're one, 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 one on on my slide. That was. I'm not trying to make a point. That was an accident. Um, so I took these. Heath Lambert, again, former president of the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors (ACBC). Uh, in his book, Theology of Biblical Counseling, said, said here are four counseling implications of dichotomy. Um, counselors will, biblical counselors will address problems that are both physical and spiritual. But biblical counselors, therefore, must utilize and cooperate with competent medical professionals as they counsel troubled people. Hopefully, uh, you can find a nearby competent medical professional who shares your worldview about uh, the heart of man being... Uh, the cause of all moral action. Also, medical care, care, while important, is never sufficient to address the problems people have because people's problems are never merely bodily, even if people have a very clear bodily problem, like the flu. Okay, that, that, how they are responding to that in their inner man is something that they need counsel and help with. 
And finally, biblical counselors must not practice medicine. Never, 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 never do that. You are not a medical professional, okay? Don't try and practice medicine in any way. All right. Let's close with prayer. God, help us because of this time together. Again, um, to genuinely help people. God, would you save us from offering counsel to people that is not helpful and especially that is not true. God, would you help us to understand in greater measure the way that you've made us and the way that you've called us to live. God, thank you for the honor you've bestowed on us and creating us in your image. Thank you for the grace you've shown us by sending Christ um, so that we can actually grow up into his image and therefore reflect your glory in marvelous ways. And, and we thank you also, God, for how you've taught us about us, about our hearts and our bodies. God, we thank you and look forward to the day when our bodies are raised and are made like Christ glorious and imperishable i pray you'd help us to long that for that day all the more and we pray this all in jesus name amen